We want to understand our environmental footprint. We want to make sure that you know, the people that we're paying get a living wage. I want to understand the multiplier between the highest paid employee and the lowest paid employee, and is it acceptable to me that that exists? You know, I want to make sure that none of my employees are on food stamps. They're all making a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, you can see the conscious capitalist starting to move in the direction of it not being just part of a business practice, but being part of their business model. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. As a leadership coach, I work inside organizations and I focus on helping leaders achieve their whole person potential and meaningfully contribute to their organization's mission. With this podcast, I share leadership best practices, developmental approaches, and stories of exemplary leaders. Today's episode is focused on social impact. I'm sort of new to this idea and I'm still teasing out all the differences between social impact, social capitalism, conscious capitalism, and all those words. My guest today is Suzanne Smith, who is an expert in this area, and I'm really excited and can't wait for the learning that I'm going to absorb today. Uh, Before I talk about your many virtues and accomplishments, can you just say hello and let's get your voice on the podcast? Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to fall. And I'm looking forward to having this conversation with all of you. Great. Thanks, Suzanne. A little bit about Suzanne. Suzanne is a serial social entrepreneur. She works with nonprofits, foundations, and socially responsible businesses and individuals, and she has a certain passion around students and young entrepreneurs. She founded Social Impact Architects back in 2009 to reshape the business of social change, and she's also a certified B Corp. And I think, Suzanne, you were one of the first, maybe the first certified B Corp in Dallas. Is that true? Yeah. No, I think we were. Mm -hmm. Good, good. She's also an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University and the University of Texas at Arlington, and the recipient of so many awards, including Best for the World Small Business by B Corp. She's won a Next Generation Social Entrepreneur Award. She also has an MBA from Duke's Fuqua School of Business and actually was the CASE Scholar. Suzanne, what does CASE stand for? The Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship. All right, deep in it. Also, I want to talk about Suzanne has a fantastic blog on social impact, and it's called The Social Trend Spotter. And I will put a link to that blog in the show notes so people can sign up for that because I do find so much value. You really pour a lot into those blogs. And I just find them really valuable. So I'll make sure and put a a link to that. I met Suzanne at a social impact event back in January before we were social distanced. And her energy and knowledge were captivating. What I love about Suzanne is she's pragmatic, action and results oriented, which always gets my attention. And so there's some background that I have. Suzanne, today, what do you want people to know about you? What what are you focused on? And what what, what would you add to what I've already said here? 
You know, I think that um, right now uh, we're really lucky in that social entrepreneurship has really gone mainstream, um, but it really requires us to have a conversation of how we continue to bring people into that big tent, um, but really make sure we're staying close to the notion of what social entrepreneurship is. Um, and so that's really where, why I'm so glad you invited me to your wonderful podcast to really explain that a little bit more, unpack that a little bit more, um, hopefully bring more people into the tent. Um, but for those people who are under the tent, give them some sense of why we're here um, and what they can do to accelerate their impact. Excellent. So I thought of you just recently because I have a colleague who is in the process of selling a business that he's had for quite a while. And he said, I want to stay in business, but I, I really want a different focus. And I asked him, I said, have you heard of social impact or social capitalism? And he said, I have not. Tell me about it. So I told him a little bit about it. I directed him to you, but I thought there are probably a lot of people in the more traditional business sector that may hear these words some, but they don't really know what it all means. And I really got so much out of your presentation back in January that I thought maybe we could just start there and you could spell out some of the distinctions between social innovation, entrepreneurship, enterprise, the difference between social capitalism and conscious capitalism. There's just a lot out there that can be confusing. So maybe you can just start by explaining some of those distinctions. Absolutely. Well, um, I also have to brag a little bit on Leanne. Um, after the January conversation, we got together for coffee, and I would say that it was probably one of the best coffee conversations I've had in 2020. Um, and so uh, whether it's on Zoom or not, because I've had lots since uh, COVID started, too, that were virtual. Um, but what I love about Leanne is that she's willing to ask the difficult questions. You know, and I think a lot of people kind of live in this social space at a superficial level, but she's really trying to go down much more deeply and saying, how can I explore increasing my impact? Thank you so much. That was really sweet. Yeah. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today is, is really this idea of, of kind of changing the idea of how we think about social change. So let me give you just a quick history lesson. Um, so in my undergrad at UT Austin, I was a history major. And so I always think it's important to understand where we've come from um, and then the present day. And then we'll talk a little bit about where I see the future going since I am kind of a, a social change futurist as well. So first, I think one of the things that is really lucky about living in the United States um, as well as other developed countries is that we have such a vibrant social society. In our earliest formation in the United States, um, civil society was a big part of what we, we did. We came up with nonprofits like the American Red Cross, American Heart Association, um, Boys and Girls Clubs. You know, we have this really great tradition of recognizing where business has fallen short and there's no possibility of a market for social change, where government may want to give um, social change over to another sector. And so we have kind of what's called the third sector or civil society that really sits in that void where business can't necessarily create enough of a market to create social change and where um, government really feels like it's there's a boundary into what it wants to do from a government services perspective. Um, and so it's really living in that middle space. Um, social change has kind of been in that middle space for a long time. Well, fast forward to about 30 years ago, 
where we really recognized that social change, while it, it lives in this middle space, has kind of a lack of definition. Um, and also, we weren't able to scale social change at, to the degree that we could through business. Um, and so, for example, you know, we had Mike McDonald's all around the country, and when you got a Big Mac, it was exactly the same. In fact, when you go to developed or developing nations, the Big Mac is exactly <laughs> the same. But in the social space, you go to one shelter, you've gone to one shelter, one homeless shelter. Um, and there isn't the same spreading of best practice, spreading of impact. In some ways, you're, you're tinkering with the idea individually in every single community. Now, you do want customization, but what it didn't allow for us to do is take things to scale. We weren't able to have, let's say, a McDonald's version of a homeless shelter all across the nation. And so what that does is it actually increases our costs. It increases our ability to then you know, solve for the issue, but also our ability to scale to everybody who's in need. Um, so it means that we're oftentimes scratching the surface of poverty, scratching the surface of homelessness, not really able to go deep and really able to solve the problem at the scale at which it exists. Um, so 30 years ago, you know, as all great things happen, a bunch of people got together around a campfire and said, you know what, there's got to be a better way. Um, there's got to be a better way for us to think about how to create social change than the traditional notion of charity. So the traditional notion of charity is the whole idea of I'll give a man a fish, um, if we want to use that analogy. So, so social entrepreneurship kind of changes that narrative and says, you know what, let's teach a man to fish. Let's figure out how to do that to, at scale. Um, and coupled with the dynamic changes that were happening on the for-profit side, so globalization, technology, it really accelerated this idea of social entrepreneurship. Um, and it was this idea of let's try to blend, you know, the models. You know, do we have to completely have business be separate and apart from social change? Or can we leverage the toolkit that business has established to create market-based solutions. And so when I talk to people about the definitions around social entrepreneurship, social innovation, and social enterprise, really what I talk about is that there are three distinct things, but they also really make up kind of this new orientation around social change. So social innovation is really about the idea. So how do you create an idea that is not necessarily a new idea because we don't really want new in the social space. Um, we want to really build upon existing ideas. In fact, can you stop right there? Why, uh, uh -huh. why would we not want something new in the social space? What's what's the danger there? Well, the danger from starting from scratch with anything is that you're not building upon existing best practices and research. Okay. Um, so even in the for-profit space, you know, so if you were to read some of the books around innovation, Walter Isaacson has a really great book on. Um, the innovators, even in the for-profit space, they're never starting with anything from scratch. They're always looking side to side and looking at people in their vertical, but also people outside their vertical to say, what can I do to improve upon existing methods? What can I do to improve upon the existing product, service, or methodology? And unfortunately, in the social space, because we don't have as much um, kind of connection between all the different things that are going on, we oftentimes will start stuff from scratch. And it means that we don't have the benefit of that foundational infrastructure around best practices, around the research. So what, what I recommend to people is we do what's called leapfrog innovation. 
which is, yes, we want to create change, but we want to give ourselves the best chance at creating impact. So we want to build it on a solid foundation of best practice research, um, problem ideation, et cetera, so that that way we get as much impact as we possibly can from that innovation. Part of the way in which you do that is through the mindset of social entrepreneurship. So if innovation is about the idea, entrepreneurship is about the mindset, the toolkit that you're bringing to the conversation. So social entrepreneurs, by their very nature, are the people who see issues, see glitches in the system, and they're hardwired to try to make change. Um, and one of the additions I've made to this conversation is entrepreneurship typically means that you're creating a business. And now we're really looking more broadly and saying we need just as much entrepreneurship as we need entrepreneurship within existing systems. So we really do want not only people, if they need to, to create businesses or nonprofits that are new, but we also want to see that same kind of um, entrepreneurial ability inside existing systems. So I would venture to say we actually have more entrepreneurs now than we have entrepreneurs who are working within existing organizations and existing communities to use that exact same toolkit to create social change. Um, so again, that's why the mindset is so critical is because you can do it both within your own organization, but also outside your organization. Yeah, I have a, a question here because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about what often happens inside a traditional business with the entrepreneur model is that it can also often be rejected because it's not part of the normal system. So how do you recommend that people work around that? Because I, I know that there can be a lot of rejection of change or different things within existing systems. Right. And so I think it depends on the individual business model. So, um, for example, you don't want people innovating around the Big Mac. Like you want the Big <laughs> right. Mac to be exactly the same. And so there are going to need to be organizations that figure out how what they do should be standardized and taken to scale. But in those particular organizations, what I recommend, and I was actually the product of this when I was working at the American Heart Association, is that there is a special department that is really focused on R&D or on innovation. Um, and that's really where the innovation within the organization sits. And it's their opportunity to come up with new ideas, get ideas from the affiliates, get ideas from different entrepreneurs, and then figure out the litmus test for at what point do we then scale this to everybody? You know, McDonald's does the exact same thing. They pilot an individual sandwich or an individual process at various franchises before they take it completely to scale. Um, so if you're in an existing structure, um, oftentimes it makes sense to have in the technology world, it's called kind of skunk works projects where you have people who are kind of specifically geared towards innovation, have the toolkit around innovation, um, know exactly what they're trying to do. And then they're the ones that are trying to innovate within the organization. And then when they're, when the innovation becomes impactful, then they take it to scale. And so that's typically what I recommend within existing organizations. Yeah, it sounds like that there needs to be an awareness within the organization that when something like this starts bubbling up, it needs to be sectioned off and kind of protected rather than keeping it in the mainstream of the business where it might get lost or it might not receive the attention that it deserves. But you have to have that awareness in order to protect it and put it over to the side. And then I would say there's other organizations that are socially entrepreneurial by their very nature. 
And so what we're seeing now, and I think this is true of people who are starting businesses, most of them are now having social entrepreneurship embedded in their DNA. You know, there's a reason why Google gives each of their employees a set number of hours every, every month, every week to just innovate. So for traditional businesses, I think it makes sense to have kind of skunkworks projects. But now we have this new breed of socially entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial organizations who from the very beginning have been entrepreneurial. Um, and so what I recommend in those cases, and I work with a number of nonprofits in this, in this particular instance, where they want to embrace entrepreneurship as a part of their culture. Um, and they really do define the boundaries of what does it mean to be entrepreneurial? Um, how do we innovate? How do we get to impact? Um, how do we think about our business model? Um, and so I do think it is, um, you know, I was just actually at a nonprofit here in the area where I was talking to them about this, and it actually really opens the mind up of people in that nonprofit to see possibilities, to see kind of the future of where the sector is going. And so I do think that there are more and more businesses as well as nonprofits and government agencies by, you know, too, that are bringing entrepreneurship in as a feature of their culture, um, where more and more employees are being asked to take ownership over what they're doing. Um, I've written a lot about that. I think the future of supervision is ownership and, and having all these mini entrepreneurs within your company. Uh, and again, it's about setting the appropriate boundaries. It's about kind of letting people know what kind of risk they can take. But I'm a big fan of flat organizations and pushing ownership as far down in the organization as possible. So social entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial culture, I think, is going to become more mainstream as a matter of course when all, within all businesses. But most businesses that are getting started tend to be moving in that direction anyway. Already, already. I want to just stop here and say you mentioned that you were at a nonprofit um, earlier this week. I think that you're going to really spark some interest on this podcast today. And I just want to say that that you do a lot of individual work with organizations, nonprofits and businesses who want to have a more social focus, and that they should contact you directly to go deep into any one of these topics that you're talking about today, because you're hitting on so many things. And I know that you have uh, incredible depth in each one of these different topics that you're talking about. So I just wanted to kind of pinpoint that right now as well. Yeah, and it's nonprofits to help them become more entrepreneurially, entrepreneur uh, as entrepreneurs, but it's also businesses and helping them think differently um, about how they're kind of engaging with the community um, and going much more deep than just giving away money and having their employees uh, give back. And then it's also foundations, you know, and high net worth individuals who are wanting to give back to the community and how they can best go about doing that. Um, so we help in all those different areas. Good, good. And I know that there's yet, so we've talked about social innovation, that's about the idea, social entrepreneurship, which is about the mindset. And then you have another category that takes it even deeper or more scalable, which is the enterprise, the social the enterprise. enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, this really then gets to how do you take an idea and how do you take it to scale? And so uh, social enterprise is really about the business model. Um, and it can be operated by for-profit or non-profit. You know, I am legally agnostic. You know, I'm really just in the business of social change. And sometimes it's better to operate as a non-profit, some as a for-profit, some as a hybrid. And the difference with this is it's operating just like a business and how we would traditionally think of a business. But in addition to having a bottom line that is financial, it also has a social bottom line. 
Um, and there's a continuum. You know, some people are more driven by the social bottom line. Maybe they're operating a, you know, reentry program and they're working with ex-felons and maybe they're more interested in the workforce part, but they're breaking even. Um, some people are more business oriented and they um, want to make profit, but they also want to make social change. You know, they have stockholders and they're still trying to get um, that dividend, but they also recognize there's externalities to their business. And so they're looking at every single thing they're doing to make sure they're being socially conscious. Um, and those are the people who you would call B corporations um, and folks who have really thought thoroughly about their business model um, and really looked from top to bottom of their business model and said, how are we getting as much social change out of our business model as possible? Um, and so the, all of those are social enterprises. Okay, and so in this social enterprise here and B Corp, et cetera, um, where does conscious capitalism fall? Is it in this vertical? Is it an adjacency? Where where would you put conscious capitalism in this conversation? Yeah, so I think that's a really great question. Um, and so I would probably put it on another continuum. Certainly, I am a big tent person. Um, you know, I want everybody in the tent who wants to create social change. But for those people who adopt the idea of that they're a business, you know, so they're a for-profit business, um, let's say, um, part of what we want to look at is kind of how do you continue to um, think about social change relative to your business? And when I work with a business, part of my goal is just to, just like anybody else, incrementally create that change over time. Um, so I really look at businesses through a continuum. You have those businesses um, who have intentionality around social change, the people who are kind of really looking at it from a business practice perspective. And that's where I would put the conscious capitalists. Those are the people who are hardwired around the idea of we want to, we want to do a better job of creating social change. But typically, they're looking at it more from a business practice perspective. It's part of their ethos. Um, so they are the people who are my heroes and go into communities. They may give their time and talent and treasure in that community. These are the people who you probably consistently hear about in your community that are the Fortune 500 companies that have a deeply embedded CSR strategy okay. um, that, that is about their employees. It's about their give back to the community. I would put those people under business practices. Okay. Um, on the other side of the continuum, and there's lots of shades of gray in between, are the people who are conscious about their business model. Um, and by the very definition of conscious capitalism, they say it's the four practices. When we look at the business model, we're really seeing it baked into the DNA of the organization. Every element of the organization has a litmus test associated with social change. Um, so not only how you're treating organization, your employees, um, but they're also looking at the value chain. You know, so to what degree are we thinking about our business um, related to the environment and how we're leveraging the environment? What is our environmental footprint? I would say that, you know, to me, conscious capitalists really are, feel responsible and they definitely are thinking about mastering social change. But I would say people who are social kind of businesses um, and the business model, it's really hard-baked, hard-wired into who they are, and they're accountable to those things. Every decision has a litmus test around social change. Um, so it's just a degree of how they have moved. In general, most of the people who I would 
put into the category of the business model. They typically legally are a business model around this. So they're a B corporation. They also have gone the extra mile and got, have gotten the good housekeeping seal and said, you know what, we're going to become certified as a B corporation as well. It's not enough for us to say we've done good um, across all the different things in our business model, but we want someone else to come in and independently validate that we've been doing good. Um, and so these are just people who are much more hyper-focused. In general, I would say people in this category started that way. That's my sense too, is that many social enterprises, and if we, if I even say social capitalism, I know that that's a term as well. It seems that the genesis of the company was social change, that there was something that they were doing from the very beginning, and they built the business model around that, whereas many of the conscious capitalist companies were, you know, started with a traditional entrepreneur, very excited about something that they wanted to bring into being, and then realized, oh, I can also uh, do good through my company. And that's how I think about the difference. I think, I think there, and I think there are some carryovers too. So I also think there are people who are in the um, B corporation group like me, who they knew when they started a business, it had to be that way. That was the only business that they were going to run. You know, I was actually asked yesterday by somebody because I was giving away my time on a project and they were like, why are you doing this? It's not a very good business practice. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, you know, this is part of our business model. Um, And it was hard because he didn't get that. He didn't get the idea that, you know, when you're a B corporation, you don't always do things connected to your bottom line. You don't always as a social entrepreneur have to get an immediate benefit out of something because you know that it's part of just who you are and your ethos. So I would say these companies, it was baked into the DNA. And I think the predominant reason is because the founder just said, this is how it has to be. This is the only way in which I'm going to run a company. Um, And so you do have some conscious capitalists who I think thought about it and maybe had already started embedding it in what they're doing. And then conscious capitalism gave it a brand um, and then they were kind of already doing it. So then it allowed them to kind of do it at an even higher level. And then I've also seen some conscious capitalists who have gotten the bug and then they've moved over to the side of, you know what, it's not enough for me to talk about it. It's not enough for me to volunteer, you know, with my employees one day every year. It's not enough for me to give some of our proceeds back to a charity. We want to do more. You know, we want to understand our environmental footprint. We want to make sure that, you know, the people that we're paying get a living wage. I want to understand the multiplier between the highest paid employee and the lowest paid employee. And is it acceptable to me that that exists? You know, I want to make sure that none of my employees are on food stamps. They're all making a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, you can see the conscious capitalists starting to move in the direction of it not being just part of a business practice, but being part of their business model. And so, so I think you have lots of shades of gray between those groups. But what I say is on one side, it's a practice. On the other, it's a model. On one, it's, it's intention, it's ethos, it's meaning. On the other side, it's accountability, it's rules, it's outcomes. Gotcha. Uh, and then a third party check, you know, like you got to make sure that you're being accountable to the entire universe um, out there, including stockholders. Um, so I think right now we have an imbalance where we have more people who are conscious capitalists and less who are, you know, kind of in this category of B corporations. But I think we're going to start seeing the scales tip where there's going to be more B corporations. One, because I think consumers are expecting it. 
You know, we're seeing more and more conversations around, you know, you should be paying a living wage and you should be thinking about your employees. And, and so, and I also think there's more and more people, including my students at Pepperdine, who would never even start a company unless it was considered a B corporation. You know, they, they don't see the world. It's like you and I, like we were around when seatbelts didn't exist. People have never (laughs) known a world without a seatbelt. Right. And, And now they don't know any other world besides equally putting profit and social good in the same category. And they're not willing to, you know, they're willing to see that you don't need to sacrifice one for the other. They can come together. And that's one of the reasons why I love teaching is because they get it immediately. I don't even have to explain it. Um, It's just part of their, the way they view the world. So there will be a day where I think entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship will live together. They're not going to be separate. Um, But, you know, hopefully in my lifetime, that will be what happens. I think so, too. And just a a couple of things to say about the the certification, you know, like the B Corp certification. I personally will shop. I will vote with my dollars with any organization that has that B on it. Me too. Athleta gets a lot of my money for even professional clothing. And And to your point as well about the kids that are in your classes, you know, younger people, I was, uh, we were with uh, my daughters in Colorado over the weekend, and my older daughter has just purchased a condo. It's very cool. And we were needing to go to a hardware store, a big box hardware store. And she wanted to go to the one that was further away because she believes in their social practices more. And so, you know, we drove 17 miles instead Mm -hmm. of three because that was important to her. So I think that what you're saying is true. I am curious about, you know, nonprofits are easy for us to think of if we're thinking of social change. So those names come right to mind. What names of companies would you put out there that are, heavily on the social capitalism or social impact, whether they began that way, they've made the change. What are some names that we would recognize that you would put in that category? You know, I'm the same way. So I consistently look at what I purchase and I purchase with my dollar, um, you know, and I vote with my dollar. And, you know, I I would also add to that category, um, you know, because I think B certification can sometimes be a costly thing. Um, I'm, I'm very much uh, connected to women and minority-owned businesses. So we source from all women and minority-owned businesses. Um, you know, so I keep in mind, too, that there are certain people who I would put in this category that are, are giving back to their communities um, and consistently putting their money where their mouth is, whether they're conscious capitalists or e-corporations. You know, those okay. are the companies that I frequent. Um, I also think that, you know, it's not just about consumers. I think we're seeing now in our stock portfolio, if you look at some of the research that's been done, those companies who perform better time after time are the ones that are socially conscious. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that is. I think part of it is the social DNA, but I also think the people running those organizations are making more thoughtful decisions. They're making less decisions that are in the short run, the better decision versus the long run being the better decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, one good example that I would put, and I have studied them quite a bit, is look at the difference between how Southwest Airlines is doing versus the other airlines right now. Um, Southwest Airlines is definitely a conscious capitalist organization. Um, they're very much about their employees. They're very much about thinking about the long term. The long term. 
those are some of the different examples of ones that I would give. On the B Corporation side, you know, there are a good good a number of companies. You mentioned Athleta. I think Patagonia, um, Uncommon Goods, Eileen Fisher. Um, there's more and more who are moving in that direction. Um, and I think that that's really fantastic. But I also think there are people who are practicing the efforts, you know, putting the effort into their outcomes. And so more and more people are kind of rewarding that, um, not only because they're giving their dollar, but I also think more employees are wanting to move there. And when I talked about this idea of entrepreneurship, when I talk to my students or I talk to my former students, they want to work for those companies. They don't want to work for companies who they feel like, I just had a a student of mine and I won't name the name, but he's like, (laughs) All they do is make war missiles. I mean, I, I'm an engineer and I want to work for a company, but I'd rather work for this company, you know, that is, you know, creating a whole lot of things that are better for the community than war missiles. And I think they're thinking about those things. You know, my generation, I don't think they thought about those things. They just thought of it as a good job with a good retirement, you know, right. and they were increasingly interesting assignments, not thinking about what those interesting assignments would lead to. I just talked to a student about that. So clearly he's conscious of kind of where he's going to work if, and he's going to go into that organization and he wants a culture where they're going to value his entrepreneurial ability. Even though it's a fortune 500 company, they're going to have ways to channel his entrepreneurial ability. Um, and so I really encouraged him. I was like, I think, you know, this company, the, cause he had two choices. This company seems like it makes a lot more sense I think, you know, the litmus test, I think, is individual, but I also think that we're going to move towards a society where people are starting to have these kind of conversations, I do uh, which, too. Which, which I embrace because I think that my personal belief is we need as big of a 10 as possible relative to social change in order for us to do more than scratch at the surface of poverty or the environment or all these issues, whatever issue you care about, early childhood, education, you have to have companies all in. Like companies have to start thinking about these issues. Um, it's not just about them creating the product or service anymore. They have to understand the externalities. Do their employees have appropriate daycare? Are they moving their employees up in a career pathway? Um, you know, when AI takes away certain positions at that company, are they retraining their employees to be on the front lines of being a math teacher, as an example? You know, they, they need to be thinking about all of these different things. So anyway, long story short, I'm a big tent person. I want everybody in the tent and then I want everybody moving and refining their business model over time to get closer and closer to social change because it's absolutely possible. So I want to go back to my colleague that is selling his business. And so he's not heard of this whole category of businesses, this big tent that you're talking about, but he's clear. And it's interesting because he's, he's a 50 something so it feels like some of us that are maybe looking at a second career or a second yeah. business, where would he look? What should he do if he's thinking, you know, I don't know quite what it is yet, but I know I want it to be different. What would you have him start reading or thinking about in order to, you know, move that idea forward a little bit? So it's a great question. And I'm um, working right now with my students at Pepperdine to kind of help channel their energy. You know, um, as I, I jokingly say, part of my job as a, as a teacher is to settle their glitter, um, <laughs> you know, because the reality is there's so many problems out there to be solved. How do you as an individual know which problem you're meant to solve? Where is your purpose? Because mm. um, I'm a big believer in this whole idea that, you know, you're, you're here put on earth to do something. 
Um, and it's part of your journey to figure that out. And like me, it's shifted, you know, so I have evolved over time and I'm on my fifth career. And so I've just been really thoughtful about it. Um, but when I talk to my students, you know, I, I typically will say part of my job first is to help you figure out your purpose and then let the business or the enterprise or the opportunity fall out of that purpose. I love um, that. And so what happens oftentimes is people fall in love with their idea versus falling in love with the problem. Um, and we as social entrepreneurs are, are agnostic when it comes to the solution because the solution will change. You know, just like the telephone has changed over time. You know, the solution will change, but the idea of we want to connect with people that we love always be with us. And it'll be in different ways over time, but that universal idea of connecting with people won't ever change. Um, so the first thing I tell people is to really get thoughtful about what, what they were meant to do. And some people do that through meditation. Some people do that through looking at their career. Some people do that through reading. Um, I think we all learn and grow in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, some people also will, will fast track the process and get a coach. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love that these students have gone back to school is because they're there paired with me and other mentors who can help kind of guide their process. I, I tell all my students I'm their Sherpa and I'm walking <laughs> alongside them. You know, I've carried the load myself. I know exactly what it's like to be an entrepreneur. You know, I've fallen down many times. And so my job is to make the ride a little bit easier, maybe a little bit more seamless. Um, so I would tell that individual to really think deeply about the thing that helps them jump out of bed every day. Like, what's the thing that is an injustice or something that maybe even they tripped on as a child? You know, maybe it was a learning disability. Maybe it was how their teacher interacted with them. Maybe it was something they overcome themselves. But find that thing that they're uniquely passionate about. Marry that with the thing that they are uniquely God-given from a talent point of view. You know, so I come from a long line of teachers. So that is one of my God-given talents is to try to break down complex ideas and, you know, inspire next generations to try to think about them differently. Um, so what is it that he uniquely knows and can kind of contribute to it? Um, and then what does the world actually need? So that's really where the best practice research and leapfrog innovation comes in. You can't assume that your solution is needed. You need to talk to the people that it influences and make sure that it's needed. And then of course, where you're going to make money. It doesn't sound like he needs to make money, but my students need to make money. So. Oh, for sure. Mo most people do. And so what I heard then is your passion, uh, your purpose, yeah, um, what you're good at, for, so yeah. your strengths, what the world needs, and what you can make money at. So yeah. where the intersection of at least those four things, that's a great place to start. And it's that's not nothing. I mean, that, that will take some time to figure that. But you know, as you think about a place to like settle into and really do some digging, I think that sounds like such a good, strong foundation as a place to start. Just like you said, settle your glitter and, and begin there. It just, it feels like things really start falling into place when you focus that way. Well, and I think you and I would agree, and I know you do personal coaching, um, that too, once you get on the path, the universe will tell you you're on the right path. You know, and so part of it is you just exploring different paths um, and kind of, you know, recognizing where your energy is, is in flow and where you're getting your energy from. And you'll start knowing the path that you need to be going down. You know, the universe will start sending you signals. The market will work. Your pilot will work. You know, people will come to help you because it's a good idea. 
Um, and then on the flip side, if no one is interested, if there's kind of continuously barriers, you may just say, you know what, this isn't the right time, or I may not be the right person. Um, and so part of our job is to really kind of have those paths in front of us. Um, I tell my students, you know, I think of it like a stovetop. I've got lots of stuff on the back burner, and then I have stuff on the front burner, and I'm putting most of my attention on the front burner, but I'm always seeing like what is on that back burner that could be a future purpose for me. You know, and I'm also always willing to try new things, you know, like this podcast, you know, so I'm trying <laughs> podcasts a lot. I'm listening to Good. them, I'm doing them. Right. You know, I, I'm a writer, so I, I write every week, but you know, who knows? At some point, maybe a podcast would be in my future. And so, um, so part of it is, I think it's about exploration and then also seeing where your energy goes to. What are you uniquely suited for? And then I would also say, you know, um, think about it in terms of being an entrepreneur versus an entrepreneur. I think so many people think about, I've got to go start something, but they don't think about it embedding it in the existing infrastructure. Um, so if he's passionate about something, he may want to go talk to the people who actually are already doing the work. Um, and he may be able to embed his ideas or his entrepreneurial thinking within an existing system and an existing structure. Um, and keep in mind, when I talk about social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship, it also may mean running for office. Um, it may mean that we go into our government systems and help, you know, work with them to mm. move more smoothly. So there are lots of ways to use your talent other than starting a business yeah. that are high, high value for everybody in the community. So just think about it in terms of that, um, is that I personally think he's got lots of different avenues he can take. And I think it'll be about him just doing some introspection, but also having lots of community conversations about, you know, what is actually needed? Where could he actually, you know, create a sweet spot for himself? Mm -hmm. And is there already momentum somewhere else where he could just jump in rather than having, because that getting the momentum in the beginning is, is heavy lifting, you know, getting something started. Well, and this is where I talk to my students about, in my personal opinion, in the same way entrepreneurship, in my opinion, has been elevated to a degree that is probably disingenuous to a lot of students because not everybody's going to be that success story. Not every 20-something is going to be able to have their business out of their garage be successful. I also think we, over, we inflate the idea of being a leader. Um, there, I mean, I'm really conscientious of the fact that I'm a leader 20% of the time and I'm a follower 80% of the time. You can't lead, you know, genuinely every single time in every single situation. So I'm really conscientious of when I go into an environment, if there's someone smarter, if there's someone more equipped and there's someone who has time, I then follow that person. Yeah. Um, so your friend may also want to follow some things for a while before he, he is really enabled to be the leader and to lead that particular initiative. And so in my opinion, we need more entrepreneurs. And in my opinion, we need more followers versus entrepreneurs and leaders. Interesting. Interesting. And I can imagine that people listening to this are feeling elevated and inspired. And this is exactly how I felt the first time that I heard you speak is that I was excited. I was inspired, hopeful. I think that uh, hope is a place where you live. And that's my feeling as we're, you know, coming to the, the end of our conversation today. And just want to say thank you for that. Thanks for what you're putting out in the world and your action and results orient orientation and your intellectual horsepower as well and your ability to have a really broad perspective instead of just saying there's one way. I love what you were saying right here at the end, like explore multiple 
possibilities, not just that he has to create a business, but there are other things that can be done as well. And I hadn't even thought of that. So thank you. Yep. We're all in a journey to just improve our footprint. You know, every single day we can do a little bit better. And that's what the research tells us. The people who actually create social change, I mean, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually said this, Uh, that social change happens one small step at a time. uh, Um, And so if people on this podcast just choose one thing, you know, decide to be more conscious in their decision-making related to products they're buying. You know, look, you know, not only just at the calorie count, but look where it's coming from. Um, And look at, you know, at certification. That alone will make a difference. You know, call your tax advisor and your retirement account and say, where are my, where's my retirement portfolio? You know, my investing in companies I don't believe in. You know, one thing makes a huge difference. And I I think it's apropos to end on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's big idea of the fact that big change happens in small ways. And she certainly was a good example of someone who was maybe small in stature, but created big change. Absolutely. I just got chills and... Let's end on that. I want to let everyone know that plenty of links in the show notes to connect with Suzanne, to read her blog, and just find more out about social impact architects, social trends spotter, etc. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world.